Hi, I'm Keith, and this is Montreal, and you are listening to The Volume Knob, the songs that saved your life. This week, Howard, and The Other Side of Mount Heart Attack. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The Pod. Let me introduce you to this week's guest, who is a fellow storyteller and music nut. My name is Howard. I am a family physician. And the song that saved my life was The Other Side of Mount Heart Attack. Howard is also a podcast host. His show is called Gateway Music, and it's all about people sharing their formative experiences as music lovers. If you Google Gateway Music, you'll find that this week's guest is me. Um, pretty excited to get on the show and talk to Howard about Marillion, which is a 1980s British art rock band that I was somewhat obsessed with in the mid-80s and early 90s. In addition to discussing Marillion, we also have a talk about the Dungeons & Dragons alignments that we would assign to Iron Maiden and the Smiths. So if that sort of geekery sounds like your bag, be sure to check it out. It's called Gateway Music. If you're not interested in esoteric conversations about quasi-operatic 80s pop music and you just want to hear a great story, you can stay here and listen because Howard has a fantastic one to share with you. It's about a lot of things. It's about fear and confusion and the power of presence. I also like it because it gives you an opportunity to understand how the people we perceive as powerful or knowledgeable are sometimes just as confused and just as scared as we are. Here's Howard. To tell you the story of the song that saved my life, I have to set the table because I found myself needing my life saved by the, from a series of decisions that I made that led up to that moment. I grew up in a middle-class family, um, a Jewish family. Uh, the valued education and I was always very good at school I was always good at school it was easy for me I wasn't excellent because I didn't really do any homework or prep or but it was it was easy so it went well in high school at a certain point you have to make decisions about what kind of classes do you want to choose and all of the smart people were taking sciences so I took sciences because that's what it seemed to do you should do if you were smart so I took the sciences and then when it, time, when it came time to choose about what to do for Sejep again all the smart people were taking sciences so I took sciences I liked sciences they were fine and they weren't hard so I did it just opening a quick parenthesis for people who aren't from Quebec, Cégep is the college that you take between high school and university. In, when I was in Cégep, I took an English course, and I really enjoyed it. And it sort of moved me, and it was actually Hemingway and Fitzgerald course. And it really moved me in a way that sciences had never moved me, and I was like, oh, maybe I should do this. When, so I applied into uh, I got uh, applied into McGill. Did a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature. 
but you know everyone told me and by everyone I mean my parents and my friends who were going into sciences and going into pre-med they said you should you know what you've taken all the courses already you just need to take like another two courses and you take all the pre-med prerequisites for medical school so I took those courses as, as electives and then as university was finishing up I was thinking about what am I gonna do next and I decided I really like literature and I like English and I like being around the people who were in arts and in English more than I liked being around the people who were in sciences. There was more sort of thoughtfulness and there was more philosophical ideas and things were less rigid and structured and things were less definitive and things were less binary and black and white. So I applied into grad school and I did, I went, I got into doing a master's in English literature and I started the program and right away saw as I got closer to the professors, they were all pretty unhappy. And I was, I think, wise about that and realized, oh, if everyone who's doing this is unhappy, it's probably not a great job. And I applied to medical school and I got into medical school. All this to say that I found myself in medical school without having really ever thought about the fact that I was going to be dealing with people, I was going to be responsible for people's lives and people's mortality, people's mor morbidity. People were going to trust me with their lives. People were going to trust me with the lives of their parents, of their children. And I hadn't really digested that by the time I was in the hospital and sitting in three o'clock in the morning as a medical student and I'm the only person there and there's a 85 year old person who's dying of uh, in, in respiratory distress and it's my job and there's no one else there and that was very intimidating for me for me I liked things that were sort of thoughtful and philosophical and not black and white and not binary and those moments there it's very hard to be like that because there's really is a right way and a wrong way and if you do things the wrong way people will suffer and it's on you that was not part of my program <laughs> that was not how i thought about myself i figured my way through medical school you know i learned how to learn i'd never really learned how to study i'd never really learned how to take some th t texts sort of seriously like in literature it was always you could play with texts that was what was so fun about them but here they were textbooks and no longer textbooks but online sources that were not to be played with they were to be learned and i remember sitting in the library with uh, some of my friends in medical school and just watching them study and i was like i don't know what they're doing i don't know how to do that i don't know how to look at a book and just sort of like take information in and not sort of like not play with it, not not find joy in it, not find sort of like trouble in it, just sort of digest it and put it in my brain. That's not how I learned and and it was a challenge. But I, I figured out how to get by and I figured out that I probably shouldn't do something in medicine that's going to be extremely mortality driven. And so I thought about psychiatry and I thought about pediatrics and I thought about obstetrics and family medicine, which are the sort of fields that don't require you to have, you know, very, very rigid information skills that focus on human interactions and that don't have two people dying most of the time.
and I ended up choosing to be a family doctor, which I think was the right decision in the context of deciding to be a doctor because it is very human and there's a lot of non-black and white in family medicine. There's a lot of human interactions. There's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of sort of respecting other people and respecting who they are and understanding that not everything is a fact. While he was learning to face facts professionally, Howard was also forced to deal with a series of things in his family life that compounded the pressure. At around the same time, unfortunately for everyone who knew her, my mom got quite uh, quite a serious diagnosis, uh, a disease called amyloidosis. I learned about this disease in a first-year med school lecture where the lecturer came in. He was a pathologist. He came in all cocky. And he was like, I'm going to teach you about amyloidosis, not because there's a cure for it, but everyone who gets it dies, but because it's interesting pathologically. So I was um, doing my first year working in the hospital I was doing family medicine obstetrics and my mom was admit was getting admitted to the hospital to get chemotherapy for this disease that was going to kill her in any case um, unfortunately you know um, I, I didn't feel like my parents wanted to know a lot of the negative stuff and they wanted to stay positive put me in a tough spot because it meant that I had information and I was the guardian of information and they very much liked that I was a doctor and it turned out that her doctors were at my hospital so I could really be quite involved and and but I had to sort of decide what I was going to share with them and what I wasn't going to share with them uh, because they didn't want to know the negative so much and that was really hard it was really hard holding on to that sort of sadness and you know, in now having processed it and talked about it and worked on it, I, I see that, you know, if I could have shared that with them, that it probably would have been healthier for all of us. But at the time, that really was not an option in my brain. My wife and I had had our first child and we're having our second child. And I was doing a job that was very scary to me. And I was having my job bleed into my personal life both my, in terms of my wife was being pregnant and having kids, which is a positive, and bleeding into my personal life in that my mom was sick and dying and in the same hospital where I was working. And I was overwhelmed. I spent a lot of time in the hospital and in obstetrics at that time the call group was about six people which meant at one of every six, night, six nights I was in the hospital overnight. The hospital was, as you'd imagine, a strange and sometimes lonely place at night. Howard would spend his shift there hoping against hope that no one would need his help. And the call room was a small room, there was no windows in it, and I used to just sit in the call room and I used to just pray that no one came in to have a baby, which is insane because that was the whole point of me being there. Because I was just scared. I was scared that I was going to do something wrong, I was scared that there was going to be a bad outcome, I was scared that I was going to be responsible for something terrible happening to people, because I knew how it felt to have something terrible happen. 
Um, and uh, I, it was just at that time that the, I got my first iPod. And uh, so I had all these songs on my iPod and I would bring it to work and I would wear the iPod and I would listen to it in the call room. At the same time, I had my pager on. And at that time, pager was on all the time, 24 hours a day. I didn't even have a cell phone, but I had a pager. And um, so if I would get rung by the pager, I, I know that, the, and I could see what the number was, the extension I know would be the case room, the delivery room, and I'd have to call. And so the pager became this sort of like weird totem and the iPod became this weird totem and they were both kind of like sort of my, my, my masters and my savior at the same time. In an iPod filled with tens of thousands of songs, Howard kept coming back to one over and over. One of them that I kept gravitating to in that case room where I was feeling scared and overwhelmed was the song, The Other Side, the other side of Mount Heart Attack, which I didn't even know. I didn't know anything about it. It was by a band called Liars, and I didn't know anything about that. I, the song, I didn't know any other songs by that band, and I just knew this one song. And it starts off with this sort of opening figure of two notes alternating sort of a wash of sound in the background and they, they add a few more notes but it's it's very spare and it's very zen and you know I, I, I didn't even know the name of it but I knew it as the little song that you, they keep repeating I can always be found stay by your side and that's so sort of started to be like that's my pager like I can always be found and it was a, it helped me release a little bit into the responsibility of the job and feel somehow okay about being flooded and overwhelmed that like you know okay but I, I I'm gonna do my job and I have this pager and this pager is linking me it, again like in a negative way to my, this thing that I'm afraid of but it was also a positive way that as long as I sort of kept the pager on I was staying in the game as long as I kept going to work I was staying in the game and that's kind of that was enough I, I didn't I knew I couldn't I, I didn't think I could do much more than that you know I just sort of just stay in the game just be present try to be present for me try to be present for my patients try to be pre present for my mom and my family Try to be present for my wife and my kids. Did your mother pass away while you were doing that residency? Yes, she did. She died while I was in the first year of being a doctor at that hospital. Yeah, that was very hard. It was very confusing because um, boundaries 
or I had like my own patients on that floor that I was visiting as a doctor and then my mom was there and uh, it was very hard because um, I would be in the nursing station talking to nurses about my patient and my mom was also a patient it was very so like besides the fact that that's not the hardest thing the hardest thing is that my mom died it, it sort of trying to control and figure out my role when I was already uncomfortable with my role was was very hard very confusing did you put up barriers what did you do um, I did a bunch of dumb things that um, put up very big barriers that took a long time to process and that frankly is complicated to answer on this show Ultimately, I got through that time, and I don't know how successful I was with it. I burnt out, within a couple of years, I burnt out of doing obstetrics and stopped doing it. I haven't regretted stopping doing it. You know, there were so many nights where I would get paged, and my heart rate would rise, and I'd, I would call the case room from my call room, and they'd be like, oh yeah, Mrs. Mrs. Jones, she's she's crowning, and it's time to come. You know, I was like, okay, I'm going to come, and I'd put my earbuds in my ears and start the iPod and play that song. You know, I can always be found. I will stay by your side. And I'd walk, shuffle down the hallway towards the case room. And I, it would feel, it would feel, make me feel safer and make me feel like I could do it. In retrospect, I wonder what the nurses thought who saw me doing that. I think the nurses, they, they knew how stressful the job was because they were doing an even stress, more stressful job. And they probably had seen lots of doctors do all sorts of weird coping mechanisms to try to deal with it. So I sort of, it felt like even in, in digesting that, it felt like, okay, I'm kind of like, this is what I have to do and this is what I'm doing. And, um, and it got me through a tough time. It was a very wild, unique time that I learned a lot about who I was and my limitations. And again, what I learned was is just be present. And then that song to me, both in its Zen, sort of just sort of calm, repetitive nature, and in the simplicity and in its message really spoke to me about just really trying to be present and that being present is often just enough just be there for the person just stay with them you know and that's something that I certainly have brought to my work and my parenting in the years after that which is just the most important thing you can do for someone who's struggling is not solve their problem because oftentimes you can't it's just be present with them and hold them and let them know that you're not you're not going to be shaken by their difficulty 
and support them and know that you're present and that their difficulty is not going to shake you. And then oftentimes people can, can get through so much. And I, I learned a version. I didn't, it took me a long time to understand what I learned, but I learned a version of that during that process. Hey friend, thanks for listening. The Volume Knob is a weekly exploration of personal stories and the power of music. It's produced by Semlevant Audio, and it's edited, written, hosted, and, uh, well, pretty much everything by me, Keith Siri. You can follow the show on Twitter at Volume Knob 1, that's the number one, and on Instagram at Volume underscore Knob. My sincere thanks to Howard for appearing on the show this week. Be sure to check out my website at www.volumenob.net for show notes with links to Howard's show, Gateway Music. I'll be on the episode that he uploads this Friday, which is February 15th, 2021. The website also has a link to our mailing list where you can sign up for the monthly Volume Knob newsletter. Finally, thanks to Kate for her 30-second review of The Other Side of Mount Heart Attack. Howard may have found it zen and relaxing, but why not? Because there was too much ahhing, like that, that's too much. The start is way too long. Like people, they want to listen to the song, not just nothing. They don't want to listen to nothing for like ages. So that's incredible. And then just, no, it didn't do it for me. Mm-mm. It was gentle, but come on, it's 2021. All right. We don't want these kind of beats. See you again next week for more of the volume knob and more of the stories of the songs that saved your life. <laughs>